So good afternoon everyone. My name is Ephraim. I'm one of the pastors here and it's a privilege to be sharing the word with you today. Um, we are going through a series in the Beatitudes, which is um, the, the declarations of blessings made by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. And um, today our focus is on mercy. Mercy. You know, in our endeavor to be a healthy church, we um, recognize that that primarily focuses on our relationship with God and having a healthy relationship with God, but then also having healthy relationships with others. And um, as we come to the, the matter of mercy, there are so many ways in which I rejoice at just the ways in which we are showing good signs of health in that sense. But I also lament at the ways in which we're not, the very real and very pressing ways in which we're not. And um, as we unpack this, hopefully the two will become clear. And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 5. Um, I'm going to read all of the Beatitudes and then I'll pray. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, that in the light of you, Lord, we are revealed to be who we are. We see ourselves more clearly. And Lord, as we just consider this matter of mercy today, Lord, we pray that truly you will fill our hearts with the wonder of you in such ways that will transform us and transform our expressions of mercy beyond even our own expectations. And so we commit ourselves and this time to you, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, these Beatitudes are often misunderstood. Many people take them to be instructions by which you can gain entrance to heaven. If you do these things, then you will be blessed with heaven. You will be rewarded with eternal life. And yet I heard somebody once say that these Beatitudes are not instructions but illustrations. They are not instructions that we need to keep, but they are means by which our re relationship with God is illustrated in tangible, practical ways. And in doing so, the evidence of our blessing is being made known, is being declared. As we get to the beatitude of mercy, we appreciate that actually we begin to see how these beatitudes are not just given in a 
kind of random order by Jesus as good things to keep in mind. But there is a sense of sequence. There is a sense of order, intentional order. Jesus is saying these things in a particular order because one precedes the other. And so we have the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. We come before God recognizing that we're morally and spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing with which we can pay the debt that we owe to him. And so we are completely reliant on him. Nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross we cling. After this we see, blessed are those who mourn. And those who mourn being those who recognize actually our bankruptcy isn't by accident, but it's because of our sinfulness. And we mourn at the state of our sin. Sin being the cause of death, natural mourning. And we experience natural mourning because death is an, in, an unwelcome intrusion, as Pastor Rob once said. And we hate it. And it causes us to grieve deeply. And yet it is a picture of the very reason why death exists, which is sin. And that should cause us to grieve even more deeply when we consider our own sin and the sin around us. And yet, beyond that, it goes on to say, blessed are the meek. So when you realize you're bankrupt and you're sinful, there's, there's nothing in ourselves to be bigging up. There's, there's, we have no grounds for showing off, even comparing ourselves to others as being better than others. And so we have a, a meek demeanor. And we have a, even, even the good that, is, that we see in us, we recognize where that comes from. What do we have that we did not receive? So how can we boast? How can we gloat? How can we show off ourselves? How can we size up against another person as if they're not our size? But we walk in meekness. And in that meekness, we hunger for more. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, desiring more of God in our lives, and more of God in our church, and more of God in our community, and more of God in our society. We see that actually we become outward looking and fundamental to the, 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 the overwhelming presence of God being manifested Fundamental to that is the issue of mercy. Mercy is at the seat of all of our relationships. And when Jesus speaks of mercy here, he's speaking mercy of mercy in two senses. Now, if you've been around here for any length of time, you would have heard myself and probably Pastor Rob and others talk about the difference between mercy and grace. And grace is that which God gives us that we don't deserve. He gives us good things we don't deserve. And yet mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. We deserve to be held accountable for our sinfulness. And yet God in his mercy chooses not to. And we're familiar with this. Um... There was a, a saying of Napoleon, he was 
um, judging a, a, a situation of treason where a, a young man was being brought before him guilty of crimes of treason. And his mother came before him and said, Napoleon, sir, please be merciful to my son. And Napoleon said, but he doesn't deserve it. And she wisely said, if it was deserved, then it wouldn't be mercy. And he said, hmm, well, then I will choose to be merciful. And you see, mercy is definitely that sense of us not getting the judgment, the execution of justice that we deserve. But in the primary sense, in this instance, that's not the first thing that is being considered. So we'll come back to that because there is no doubt that that is very much at the heart of what is being spoken about here. But there's another dynamic of mercy that is included when Jesus uses this word. We could say that the combination of the two might look like this. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So it's compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. And so in the first instance, let's recognize that there's in that definition two layers of mercy, natural and spiritual. And let's think first of all about, first of all about the natural, the, the, the sense of compassion. In many churches around the world, um, they have a phrase that they use for certain aspects of ministry. It's a phrase I sometimes use myself, and they say mercy ministry or mercy ministries. And the idea is that these are ministries of compassion towards the needy. And so, this is um, very much the case of what's being meant as we consider compassion. Compassion shown towards someone's need, particularly where undeserved. And so, we have various expressions of compassion that we engage in as a church. The barley loaves, food redistribution ministry. The TOG work with the school. All of these things are clear and evident expressions of compassion for those who are in need. And this is Compassion towards someone, whether or not we feel they deserve it. Because we know that politically, there will be those who would say, well, look, you know, you need to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You gotta, people would even say, you know, um, do what, do, uh, what, what's the phrase? Uh, God helps those who help themselves. That's the phrase I'm trying to find. As if it comes from the pages of Scripture. And yet we see a different kind of picture being painted by the scripture as it relates to compassion. Because as with undeserved forgiveness, the, the acts of kindness and generosity are also towards those who do not deserve it. So one of the things I rejoice about in, in the Barley Loaves food service that we run is that 
People don't have to prove their need. People don't have to prove that they are deserving of the free food and other items that they're able to get when they come. And some would say, but why would you do that? Because then people will come and exploit it. Some may, and I'm sure that, that there may well have been a few that have. We hear stories of those that come and they're reselling what they've been given. But in the first instance, we recognize that for somebody to come and receive a handout, quote-unquote, takes a certain commitment and a certain humility and a certain willingness to be perceived as vulnerable. And often in our society, there are people who are actually even working, maybe in low-paid jobs, but their financial circumstances are so hard that even though they're working and they're not on benefits, they still need help. There are so many people within our community that they don't have any kind of social family network. Think about how many times you've been helped or you've helped somebody else within your family who's needed a, a little catch-up to get them, keep them to the end of the month, payday, or they've needed a... An unexpected occurrence has taken place. An un unexpected bill has landed on them. The boiler's gone. The cars need fix fixing. S school shoes needed buying. And help was needed. We've all been in that situation at one time or another, right? Think about those people that don't have access to those kind of resources and support. They've already used up their crisis load from the social services. And they're not going to get another one for six months. Who is there to help such people? And even though we may sit down and pontificate and think, well, you know, they should, be, should, have, they should have worked harder at school and got better grades and got a better job and be able to do better for themselves. Thankfully, God doesn't look at us like that, right? Thankfully, God doesn't look at us and say, well, you could do better, so suffer. But he extends mercy to us and shows compassion. And this is what we're called to as Christians. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is the calling of the believer. We are called to show compassion. This is the kind of compassion we see in the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told as he shared the parable. And, you know, we share it with our little ones and we remember it from Sunday school. But just like the truths that Jesus spoke, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful little story, but it has such deep and profound implications. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, there was a man who was on the floor and he was suffering, having been beaten up by robbers. And a, a, a priest came by and just kind of walked by and, and ignored and kept going. And the Samaritan came and attended to this individual. And the Samaritan, we have to understand, um, as, they, as, as the Samaritan attended to the, to the injured 
Jewish person was doing something that was countercultural because Jews and Samaritans were arch enemies from generations. Samaritans historically are technically half Jews. And so the Jews looked down on the Samaritans as less than and were prejudiced against them. And so there was a history of animosity and strife between them. And yet this Samaritan crosses the cultural divide and takes care. And not only does the Samaritan actually take this injured individual and put them into, into a place of safety and care, but offers to pay for anything even over and above that, they, that which they need. Now, this wasn't because the Samaritan had to. This wasn't even because the individual who had been beaten up had been offended by the Samaritan and now the Samaritan was showing mercy to this individual because he had the power to overlook an offense. There was no offense to the Samaritan in this. Look at what James says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. James is very practical in his letter. And, and that's the, one of the real themes of James's writing. It's very practical. And James is like those individuals that's like, you know what? I don't care how much Bible you know until I know that you care. You could tell me how much scripture you like and quote how much references and how many theologians and all kinds of doctrine and such like. But what? Show me something. Do something. Don't just give me a phrase that we used to use, head knowledge. Some of you remember that, yeah? Head knowledge. Now, obviously, we can't take that and go to the other extreme and say that doctrine doesn't matter. We just had a series, Doctrine Matters, right? <laughs> and at the end of that series, you appreciate, you know what, doctrine matters. This is rich and wonderful. And yet, we can't have doctrine without deeds. And this is what James is saying. You can keep yourself unstained from the world. And, and be very um, aloof and standoffish. And I'm not like these sinners and I don't participate in their life. But that's not true religion. That's not real Christianity is what he's saying. But there is a dynamic of real Christianity that necessarily involves us, involving our Selves in the lives of others, involving ourselves in the lives of the needy. Now, for some of us, that might be on a practical level. Actually, we're going out and we're, we're helping with barley loaves and we're volunteering in TLG and we're, we're actually in the forefront, getting our hands dirty. For others, it might be actively supporting that in financially giving. Because this is included in our sense of compassion. It's using the means that we have. 
Some people don't have the time. Some people don't have the, the opportunity in that way. But the time that you're spending in work and so on affords you the finance to be able to sow into and contribute towards relieving the needs of others. This is a quote from a historian as he looks back at recent church history. Lengthy but worth reading. History shows that the thought of Christ on the cross has been, pot has been more potent than anything else in arousing a compassion for suffering and indignation at injustice. The later evangelicalism that saw in the death of Christ the means of salvation for fallen humanity causes its adherence, those who believe in Jesus and his saving work, to take the front rank as champions of the weak. Prison reform, abolition of slavery, the Factory Act, protection of children, protection of animals, all are as a result of the evangelical revival of the 18th century. So there were many, I mean, you, you, you can go around and see Shaftesbury Trust, Peabody Trust, see all of these housing provisions. You can look at Tear Fund, Save the Children, the Red Cross. I mean, all of these national and international aid agencies all finding their roots in the 18th century philanthropic, philanthropic. I tried to practice that, you know. philanthropic evangelical movement where people as Christians moved by the saving work of Christ for undeserving sinners were given to show compassion even to the point where they would put their money where their mouth is. Now, some have said, well, you know what? That's just a social gospel. All you need to do is preach Christ, and once people get redeemed and the, the, the transforming work of Christ affects their life, then they will become, you know, upwardly mobile, and, and they will um, experience social lift. Mm. Maybe somebody should have told Jesus that. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without the shepherd. In the book of John, we see that Jesus, John chapter 6, called his disciples and fed the people. And he fed them even though we see later on, he says, I know that you're just, you're not following me for the signs that I'm doing. You're following me because your belly was full. Because you got well fed. And Jesus knew that was the case, and yet he fed them anyway. And he fed them first, even before he then challenged them with the gospel. He 
said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And so he, he made the relationship between the food he was given and the food that he is. And people walked away when they got challenged. And Jesus didn't, hey, 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 come back, come back, come back. Don't you know that I fed you? You've got to receive what I say. If you don't receive what I say, then at least pay me for the food that I've given you. And some of us feel like that. Some of us feel like, well, you know what? If, if we're giving these people food and, and they don't receive the gospel, then you know what? It's wrong. We shouldn't give them food anymore or make them pay for it. But we don't see that in the example of Jesus. You see, through acts of compassion, the, the attractiveness of the gospel is revealed. The love of God is revealed. Because such is God's love towards us. Yes, indeed. He did see the crowd. Look at what it says in Proverbs. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. So he who oppresses a poor man insults society. Is that what it says? He, he who uh, oppresses a poor man insults humanity. That's not what it says. He who oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Honors who? The needy or, or the maker? Right. So in that we are honoring God. Look what it says in Proverbs. In case you think, oh, well, I'm not really guilty of oppressing someone. Mm. All right. Do not withhold good. From those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. So you, you can make a change and there is a genuine need and you can do something about it, but you choose not to. The Lord says, don't do that. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it when you have it with you. How many times have we done that? I know that I've done that. I can be bad man sometimes, I have to confess. It's good for the soul. And I can well and give the person, and I'm just like, mm, nah. Yeah. In my time, on my terms, when I am ready. The Lord rebuke me. You see, this is how we're called to love and exercise compassion how we're called to exercise mercy. We see that this was one of the conclusions of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. As the gospel began to spread throughout the world and Gentiles were receiving the gospel and it was going beyond the, the, the lands of the Jews, there was a question, what do we do about this? And they were told not to Tell the Gentiles, don't engage in sexual immorality and don't eat meat with the blood. And as Paul recounts the situation in Galatians 2, he said, they asked us to remember the poor 
the very thing I was eager to do. You can just do a word study in your own time in the Bible on the poor and see how often every time the poor is mentioned, God is mentioned likewise in favor of them, advocating for them. This also stands for not just those who are outside, because so often it's, it's easier for us to give to those who are outside rather than to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Come on now. You don't have to say amen. You can just say ouch. <laughs> but it's true. We will give to charity before we will give to the church. We will give to, what do they call them, chuggers on the street, the, 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 the charity, uh, not market muggers. <laughs> the, the, is that what they call them, chuggers? Yeah. The, the, ones that, the, the ones that are out there, oh, just two pound a month. I heard Peter, was it one week, two weeks ago? Where are you, Peter? Was it two weeks ago? Said, look. Sign up, just make a standing order, put barley loaves, just two pounds a month. How, what a difference it would make. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. How many people, do, don't put your hand up. How many people done that? All right. So the reality is that we do find it easier to give to those who we see outside in need. But look what it says in Galatians 6 here. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Everyone, amen, everyone. Everyone is, is a, a, a worthy bene, uh, beneficiary. And especially to those who are in poverty, in the gutter, who are in shelters, who are of big charities, international aid agencies. Is that what it says? No. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Charity starts at home, right? As the saying goes. Well, that verse suggests that it's got some kind of biblical substance. We should be especially looking out for opportunities to show compassion to one another. And so this is why when we established barley loaves, on the, on the basis of this scripture, we said, you know what? There are those among us who are in need. And likewise, should participate of this resource that God has provided. Now, we definitely want to bless those who are outside and give opportunity for everyone to come in. And especially as, a, as a, an evangelistic witness to the kindness of God. You know, the amount of people that have left there, tears in their eyes. You guys are so kind and you do it with such love and such smiles on your faces and I never knew anywhere like this existed and I'm a lion mark. People leave here with that sense of just being overwhelmingly cared for and wondering why. Why are you even doing this? You're not funded by the government. You do it at your own expense. You're volunteers. You drive. You pay. In fact, you pay for the van to go and collect it every week. It costs you to do this and you're, you're giving it to us free. What a tremendous example of the gospel of God's saving grace. 
Amen. But that example and that, that um, expression of love cannot be reserved exclusively for those who are outside. Look at what John said in 1 John. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love... Oh, can I borrow a fiver? Sorry. <laughs> I'm worshiping God. I love you, Lord, today. And then we conveniently forget when the song's finished. But in our minds, we're thinking, why are they asking me for money? I mean, come on, surely they're working. And so in this, we are challenged that our mercy and our compassion be consistent. And that it be focused. And that it be especially availed and directed towards those who are within as the scripture says. Because in this, we are demonstrating truly the love of God. Now, when we look at these Beatitudes, it's important that we recognize that these Beatitudes are actually works of God. They are expressions of God's work in his people. And you might look at this and suggest, well, anybody can be charitable, compassionate, in practical things, and yet we see that the expression of Christian mercy and compassion may be expressed in natural ways, but it's not normal. It's not merely normal. It's just not normal for everyone. And you think, okay, well, we're helping to relieve poverty and hunger and provide shelter. And If that's all that we've done, then it would be a problem. If that's all that we were given to as Christians... In fact, if that were the primary thing we were given to as Christians, it would be a problem. So we said that compassion is meeting a person's need. What are people's greatest need? You see, we can have compassion to their earthly needs but people have a greater need than that listening to premier radio in the morning mornings the, the preaching slot um have been for years and i remember years ago i was kind of somewhere in between this world and the, and the world of sleep and i remember hearing this phrase that really captured me even in my half-awake state. And it was by a preacher called Adrian Rogers who's gone to be with the Lord. Some of you will remember his radio ministry. And I just remember him saying one day, as Christians, we are not seeking to make the earth a better place to go to hell from. And I was like, head side. 
You couldn't put it more blatant and explicit than that as far as the need for us to preach the gospel and minister to people's greatest need. The greatest need that people have is for Jesus. It's for eternal salvation. And it's not normal that regular Joe Public non-Christian is going to be in any way concerned about that. I mean, the fact that they're not a Christian says that they're not concerned about it for themselves. And so, why would they be concerned about that for others? And so, if people in general are not concerned about that, even as they're doing their charitable works, how can we not be concerned about that? If we're not, who will be? If you're not concerned about someone's eternal destiny, who will be? You see, there is a sense in which we cannot seek to meet people's earthly needs at the expense of overlooking their eternal need. And we know that it's a challenge because the gospel is an offense and we want people to like us. We want people to think that we're nice. Come on, if we're, if we're honest, we do. We all like to be liked. Pirate Radio, I can't remember, it might have been Vibes FM or one of them stations. And there was always this, these, these DJs that would come on and say, yeah, you know, the dance is going to be, it's just going to be niceness. Because it's nice to be nice. And it is nice to be nice. And we feel that sense of feeling nice when we're nice. And when people see us in that light. But often when we introduce the gospel into the conversation, it becomes an offense now. And it becomes a stumbling block. And so that becomes a deterrent to us. Mm, I don't want to really kind of upset this relationship that's going on. It's really, you know, everyone's nice right about now. Such a nice relationship. Why do I want to rock the boat by introducing the gospel? Let's just leave them feeling nice. And you know what? They'll get the gospel from that. I think it was Francis Assisi that is quoted as saying, Preach the gospel as much as possible, and if necessary, use words. And I'm like saying, when is it not necessary, brother, to actually use words to preach the gospel? When is it not necessary? Think about the word. It's not, not when it's convenient, not when you feel like it. If necessary, I mean, come on. Words are necessary, fundamentally, to the communication of the gospel. But so often, we find in, in our Christian life that is, one is pitted against the other. Don't do any good works. Just preach. That's enough. Well, stop all the preaching and browbeating. Just do good works. That's enough. They'll get the message. And we see this polarization, this, this pushing to either extreme of the two views. And I'm saying, like, why can't it be both and? Why can't we do good works and preach the gospel? This is a quote from um, John Stott. He said, naturally, 
if we had to choose between evangelistic and humanitarian service, you imagine you're put in a situation where you have a choice. You can only choose one or the other. Like, there's no in-between. There's no both and. You can only choose one or the other. Evangelism or good works and compassion. You have a choice. You can only choose one or the other to give your money to. Uh-oh. That kind of narrows the, um, the, the challenge, right? To evangelistic ministry and the sharing of the gospel or good works and compassion. If we had to choose between evangelistic and humanitarian service, we would have to agree that the spiritual and the eternal has higher priority. Amen? We would have to agree that. Now, just as we pause, does the commitment and expression of our um, giving ourselves to mercy and supporting and helping others and giving money towards necessary causes, is, is that priority reflected in our expressions? In the time that we give, in the help that we give, in the, is, is all of that actually reflected, reflecting the priority of the spiritual and the eternal? He said we would have to agree that the spiritual and the eternal has higher priority than the material and the temporal. But thankfully, we don't have to choose. Or very seldom. Sometimes, rarely. We might have to, but generally we don't have to choose. And so why force, force a choice that we don't have to make? And so it's not either or, but there is a necessary sense in which we should give ourselves to the work of compassion. Jesus said in Matthew 25, to one who gave a cup of water to one who was in need, you gave it to me. One who visited someone in prison, you gave it to me. And, the, and the, the, the people said, but Lord, when did we visit you in prison? And when did we give a cup of water? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Sorry, I should have added the previous verse, which says, Having done it to the least of these, you've done it for me. But if we don't do it, actually, we are denying the reality of our commitment to the Lord, even in seeking his pleasure and the blessing of his will. And so it's something that we must do. Now, that's one dimension of mercy. The other dimension of mercy we're more familiar with. And I think, to be fair, it's actually an area that we struggle with more than the acts of compassion and kindness. And it's the ability to forgive someone even when they don't deserve it. Not giving the deserved punishment, but giving forgiveness instead. Are you someone that harbors offenses? 
When someone's hurt you and they've offended you, you carry that. To the extent that it causes your heart to be closed off to that person, it causes you to have an unwillingness to interact with that person. It causes you to actually have ill feeling and ongoing bad thoughts towards that person. You see, this suggests that there is a lack of mercy on our part. It may be that the person genuinely offended us, that they genuinely hurt us. And as the wise mother said to Napoleon, if mercy was deserved, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be justice. But mercy, as we see in the book of James, triumphs over justice. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In God's economy, it is better to be merciful than to demand justice. Now, why is it that some of us find it so hard to actually show mercy? Why is it that some of us find it so hard to show forgiveness even when it's not deserved? You'll remember the woman who was caught in adultery. And... It is said that it is the same lady who then came back and cried tears as she washed Jesus' feet and used her hair to dry it. And in Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, The one who is forgiven much loves much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Now, if we have a problem, if we struggle to actually be able to show mercy to others, it suggests that we have lost sight of the mercy that has been shown to us. When we're stingy in our ability to show mercy, when we're not gener generous in our forgiveness towards others, it says that we have lost sight of the mercy and forgiveness that has been shown to us. Maybe we found ourselves in a place of self-righteousness, where we feel like we're moral individuals. We've been, a, we've been Christians for a season, and we don't really do any kind of mad things. Human morality does not equate to righteousness. It's so important that we understand that. I mean, you think about over the decades that human morality has shifted. Once upon a time in this country, it was against the law to engage in a, a same-sex relationship. In this country, it was against the law. 
But popular consensus has shifted. And the opinion of the majority says that it's fine and laws have been changed. Now, if we were defining righteousness by human morals, then righteousness would be forever changing. And we would have no certainty as to what really is right and what really is wrong. And yet, there is a standard of righteousness as we talked about last week. And it is not what we say is right, but it is what God says is right. And it's so interesting the way that the Lord exposes our hearts. Look at this from Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates. Lord of mercy. Six things. You don't often read about the Lord having hatred. But as a holy and righteous and just being, he is, it's, it's anticipated that there are going to be things that he hates. In the same way that we hate injustice and we hate to see people taken advantage of and we hate swindlers and cheats and Identity fraudsters and e-burglars. Those people that get into your account electronically and all of that kind of stuff. We hate all that stuff. God hates sin. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, or as some translations say, a proud look. How many times have you, have you caught yourself just feeling yourself? Like, you're just like, I mean, you may have done something really well and you're just like, you know what? I'm going to roll out here today. <laughs> How many times have, have you looked at other people and in their inability and just been like, I could do that so much better than them? God hates that. Now, we can rejoice in the Lord. No one's saying that we have to walk around and not acknowledge his goodness towards us. But let's acknowledge from whence it has come. Where's it come from? It's not from us. It's not because we're great and wonderful. Let's give glory to God. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Huh. Do I need to unpack that one? How many times have we been braced up by our spouse and only to give, you know, the, 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 them little... We say something that can be taken many ways. We say something that can be taken many ways and we redefine in our mind what we meant. We know what we meant, but when they call us out on it, we're like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. <laughs> Lie? The Bible says that there was no deceit found in Jesus' mouth. That he never said anything to give the wrong impression, knowing he meant something else to him. We do it all the time. Hands that shed innocent blood, and we all say, ah, listen, I'm not like, I'm a lot of things, but you know what, I don't do that. Apart from when you're assassinating someone's character, right? When, 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 you're, when, you're, when you're causing mouth murder. That's what slander means in the scripture. Am I lying, Pastor Rob? 
A heart that devises wicked plans. You know what? I thought about this and I was like, oh, Lord, forgive me. You know the amount of times, right? In my mind, you know when you have the argument in your head and you've planned out everything that you're going to say to that person when you see them. You've rehearsed the whole thing. I remember, you know they say confession is good for the soul, right? <laughs> so I, I had an issue. It, it, it started off as a trivial issue. I'd ordered some food from a local, um, a local place in New Cross. I'm going to tell you the name in a minute. <laughs> Don't, nah, they've, they've actually closed down now. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Watch. I ordered some food. And it's around the corner from my house. 50 minutes later, nothing. I phoned up. Oh, oh it's going to be half an hour. I said, half an hour? Come on, man. Just wait, just wait. The man started being rude to me. I was just like, hold on a second. You're there telling me this order that should come in an hour is going to be half an hour, and then you're being rude to me. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Long story short, I went round there, innit? <laughs> And yet, as I'm walking, man's going to be rude to me after he take my money, take my order. What? Let me go and tell him something. So I go in the shop. And I'm thinking he's going to see me and he's going to kind of calm down. He was rude to me further still. <laughs> so I'm in the, keep your order, keep your food. And, and I'm raising my voice in the shop. Come out the shop, I'm thinking to myself, this guy is actually having a laugh. And the thing is, he was kind of racist to me as well. So I just, that really got me. So I'm looking, I see this bin. The um, street bins. And I'm thinking, I'm going to take this bin and I'm going to put it through his window, devising plans. <laughs> Wicked plans. I, I want to tell you how God saved my life. As I looked at the, at, the, at the bin, I saw blue lights flashing on the bin. And I looked around and there was police, because the shop was right next to the venue, the venue um, club. And the police were out there. And I thought, I can't do this now, can I? <laughs> and I just walked home and then obviously I began to calm down and I was like, Lord, thank you. Oh, Lord have mercy on my soul. Thank you for sparing me. I was devising wicked plans, and the Lord spared me. The next wicked plan that I went on to devise is I'm just going gonna, gonna to annihilate them on, on the internet. Bad reviews, starts rumors, and all that. But then again, obviously, the Lord captured me. <laughs> so I didn't even write one bad review. I didn't even bother do that. But like I said, vengeance is mine. They're closed now. So what was it called? It was called... <laughs> It was called the Ottoman, uh, it was, it was a um, Turkish or Lebanese place, Ottoman, Ottoman Empire, something like that it was called. So if they open back, you know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is, I mean, I laugh and joke, but the Lord hates it. Look, he said he hates hearts that devise wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. I remember sitting down and reading this, these verses with a young man. And he was like, I never knew this was in the Bible, you know. I can really see myself in this. <clears throat> now, I knew that this individual was active on roads, as they say, in some way or another. But I didn't really know his full 
story. Again, I didn't really need to, and I didn't really want to press him in terms of, which of these sins would you say that you're guilty of? <laughs> which of these do you need to repent of? But that running to do evil, I mean, that doesn't just have to be, I'm out there selling drugs or robbing people and so on. It could be that illicit sexting, that rushing to the computer to watch inappropriate material, a false witness who breathes out lies. So silence is complicit agreement. And we hear somebody accusing someone else and we know it's not true, but we say nothing. One who sows discord among brothers. The amount of times we've had conversations with someone about others that they didn't need to know. We're telling them things that they didn't need to know. They have no part in the conversation and there's nothing that they can do to influence the outcome for righteousness. They say misery loves company. And when we find ourselves in that place, what we want to do is we feel offended or we don't like the person, can't stand them, whatever. And then we begin to tell everyone else so that they can come on our side and be allies with us. It's an abomination in the sight of the Lord. And so we need to be merciful. We need to have mercy. And why? Because God has had mercy toward us. But God be enriched in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, God has been so good to us in Christ. If The psalmist said, if the Lord were to mark our transgressions, if the Lord were to mark our sins and hold them against us, who would stand? Who would stand? If all of our sins from the day we were born, time doesn't forgive sin. And neither does any amount of good deeds. We deserve God's justice. We deserve punishment. And yet God has called us to mercy because of his mercy towards us. And so even when it says, the one who shows mercy shall receive mercy, it's not a deal. It's not, well, if you show mercy then God will be merciful to you and let you off your sin and you can go to heaven. No, that's not what it means. We show mercy because we've first been shown mercy. And having been shown mercy, we now have that mercy to extend to others. And as we show mercy to others, actually, people will show mercy to us when we need it. Again, we look at James, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. That's on a human level. So on a practical level, just remember, however good you feel you are, there's always going to come a time when you're going to need mercy. Maybe even from that person that you need to show mercy to. Remember, God has shown you mercy. You have it to give. 
Be merciful. God is rich in mercy. And God didn't sweep it under the carpet. To show mercy doesn't suggest it doesn't matter. To show mercy doesn't mean that, oh, you know, we're just going to pretend. I wasn't hurt. I wasn't offended. No, God was offended by our sin. And he actually executed judgment. He judged Jesus for your sin and for my sin. And the mercy that we received may have been free, but it wasn't cheap. Because it cost God his son. It cost Jesus his very own life. So how can we not then show mercy to others? And that mercy that we've received and as we express it to others becomes evidence of the fact that we have received mercy and that same mercy will keep us. You ever got to that point in your walk where you feel like, Lord, I've prayed 9,999 times for the same sin, telling you I'll never do it again. And you're back there. I want to end with this verse. It's from Lamentations in the Old Testament. The people were under the law, but they knew about the mercy of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Used to love singing that song back in their day. Who knows that song? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faith. Oh, Lord, great is that. Let's stand. I'm going to invite the team to come back. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you. Great is your faithfulness. Your steadfast love knows no end. Lord, your mercies, they never, never cease. There's no limit. Ah, Lord, there's no limit to your mercy. There's no limit to your mercy. Ah, oh, we thank you, Lord. That is such a comfort and a challenge all at the same time. Because we're grateful, Lord, for the mercy that you show us, the limitless mercy you show us. And yet we're challenged, Lord, likewise, to show that kind of mercy to others. We thank you, Lord, that we love because you first loved us. We are merciful because you are first merciful to us. Thank you, Lord. Forgive us for our 
merciless hearts, Lord, for our merciless ways, where we have held on rather than let go of things, where we have chosen to use it against others rather than use it as an opportunity to demonstrate your love and your kindness. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.